This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host for the Planet Microcap podcast. And joining me today is someone who, uh, you know, every time we see each other at a financial conference, we end up talking for what seems like forever. And and it's just, we're going back to our roots a little bit here and just doing a whole good old classic microcap jam session right now. Uh, I got Dean Trottier on. He is a full-time private microcap investor. He also runs the blog Petty Cash. Dean, let's do this, man. How you doing? I'm doing good, Bobby. How are you? Holding up, you know, holding up. Did a little rearranging this morning, you know. Uh, baby girl starting to, uh, you know, take that next level. So, uh, you know, just uh, <laughs> getting prepared for that, man. How about you? Uh, I'm good. The, definitely been an adjustment. I got an older son uh, doing the home. I don't know if it's considered homeschooling or at least homeschool supervising. Uh, mm-hmm. so we've had an adjustment with that and I got a little guy, so I, I've been able to kind of have my mom pitch in a lot and, and watch him, um, so I can get some work done and stuff like that. But it's been, it's been an adjustment. It, it certainly hasn't been, uh, hasn't been easy at times. I think the hardest part for us is, is, uh, like not being able to go to the playground for me, not being able to go to the gym has been a, a hard adjustment for sure. You know, I, I was going to joke that this is the only way that I could get you on is that you're, you know. The gyms are closed, so you're able to actually spend some time. And, I got and, all this time. <laughs> it turns out, it turns out, when I don't go to the gym for several hours a day, I just end up eating for several hours a day. So I, I put on the quarantine fifteen and then some. Oh, dude, I was at a quarantine twenty, and then I, I did like a. I'm in the midst of finishing up a three week cleanse, so to speak. Oh, a nice cleanse, yeah. Yeah, you know, not yeah, not just. Good. You know, not you're not like the crazy California cleanses that people might associate with us yeah. Californians, but you know, cutting out cutting out some of the the non essentials and and uh, yeah, yeah, some of the protein helps. Food. Yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah. All right, dude. So let let's dig into your background a little bit. You know, I I know we were talking offline. You know, you don't have this long family history of being in finance and all this kind of stuff. So. Really, I just want to know is how did your love of investing begin? Sure. Uh, I would say, you know, I, like you mentioned, I don't have a big history. Neither of my parents were uh, university educated. They both grew up very, very poor. So I was taught from a young age to save. And whatever you think you can save, you should be saving more. So I just, you know, even through high school, I was just saving money like, like crazy. Um, and I managed to kind of amass a fair bit of wealth, you know, for someone who's like 20 years old. Um, and I was putting it into mutual funds. I read uh, The Wealthy Barber at the time, uh, just talking about, you know, like the, the compound interest thing just clicked for me quite easily. But it was a matter of optimizing sort of um, switching from mutual funds to index funds. And it didn't really quite scratch the itch that I wanted. So, uh, you know, I started with, after I switched index funds, I took a small portion of my portfolio and started managing it myself. Um, I didn't do better or worse than the market, but I figured I could, I could do this. And so I eventually sort of in the midst of end of 20 or end of 2007, I sold all of the mutual funds and index funds that I had and started managing it myself 100%. And Wow. Let me tell you, that was an interesting time to uh, to pull the switch. I mean, um, <laughs> talk about timing. You know, it, yeah, it, uh, it, it hardens you. It, uh, you know, and if there's no, there's no mistakes, only lessons, if you let them be that way. And so I started, you know, getting interested in individual securities. And then, you know, once I realized kind of what the freedom, for me, it's always been about freedom. I had... I definitely had um, a hard time going and going to work in the corporate world um, with 
you know, and, and having that feeling like I'm building someone else's empire. And so for me, it was a matter of, of, of just getting to that escape velocity as quick as possible. And microcap seemed the most logical way. Plus, like, like I'm not going to lie to you, Bobby, like I'm an average intelligent person. I don't have, I don't have uh, a, a super high IQ. I can't analyze things better than the next person. So it's nice. To Me too. Kind of, don't worry. Yeah, like it's, it's nice to play. You know, it's <laughs> nice when I'm playing basketball against every everyday people rather than the Harlem Globetrotters. So it's it's easy to to find these little these little businesses with you know the really good uh, risk reward ratio. Um, plus, they're easy to understand. Like to dissect all the pieces of some of these big businesses when they've got you know 50 analysts following them, you just you have no edge. And so when there's no one following them, you know uh, there's a there's a chance, or certainly not it's not certain, but there's a chance that I have I can stumble upon something really good that I can you know, build wealth with. Got it. All right. Well, so I want to go. I want to take a step back. You know, you you said you just you caught on early to this idea of saving and then compounding interest and whatnot i mean what was it that you read or saw that inspired you to start thinking that way and then eventually say okay well i'm going to take the savings and then put it in mutual funds yeah i would say like because that wasn't actually my template for my parents my parents are very much like my my dad's that stereotypical gic veteran like he he was around when interest rates were well above 10 percent and and he had he had had a couple of experiences in the stock market and, and lost some money. And so to him, that was like it was a no fly zone. That was we just don't do that. And um, once I realized, you know, when you do the math and despite having more volatile, you know, say 10 percent or 15 percent returns. Versus a steady at the time, GICs were paying four or five percent. Now they're like two percent. But uh, you see it over a 10-year period, you know, if I'm 25 and I'm planning on working till I'm in my 50s, what am I better off? Uh, where am I better off putting my capital? Uh, and then it just, it slowly kind of migrated to where was my edge. And, and microcaps are kind of, it feels like kind of that last frontier where you can, where just an everyday person can roll up their sleeves, um, do some work, you know, help some, you know, find some good networks and, and attend some of these great conferences. and you know, can really find something, uh, you know, unique that has a, uh, that adds, that adds value, not just to shareholders, but to the entire, all of the stakeholders within that business. A hundred percent. I mean, I, you must've heard my interview with Jim O'Shaughnessy when he, that's one of his, that was one of his main lines is that microcaps is the last frontier, you know? Um, and really, I mean, it's, it's a market that investors like you, I mean, really can take advantage of you know this is a market for the private retail investor you know especially if you're thinking along the lines of you know i do want to find companies prior to uh them being found by institutions or getting crazy analyst coverage i mean for you what was it what, what was that first microcap experience you know when you decided when you said hey okay this is where i think i can find my edge you know what was that first experience you can name the name or not because i'm sure it's, it has to do yeah. with the name but you know, you let me know. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, so the, the one that it, it hasn't actually built the most wealth for me, but it was San Goma Technologies back, you know, they, they were a lumpy product company and they had brought a new CEO in and they had, they were trading at it as a net net. And the CEO said like he had a plan and he's still there today. And by the way, when you, when you make money off of the companies that you invest in, you can call the CEO by the first name. Otherwise, it's just the CEO. So Bill turned, <laughs> came in, and he uh, he he had a plan, and it was that you know, back when I first started, I had that typical uh, that trajectory where you start and you just buy very quantitative um, businesses, and you you flip them for you know a twenty or thirty percent gain, and you find the next one. And this one was a little bit different because he had took the spare cash and and bought a couple of small uh, a other small businesses and, and took a lot of the lumpiness out of the business slowly and turned it from, you know, a lumpy product with, with decent margins to more sustainable service business over time. And as, as I kind of knew, as I discovered that, you know, you don't just want to buy a company for, 
50 cents and sell it for you know 70 cents or 80 cents on the dollar because rarely do they become completely full valued you um you see these companies with these long this long runway and you can set these milestones to say well if this this really has this you know lots of upside potential meaning multiples of today's share price years out what are some of those milestones and you can build a conviction to add to it and so when you become super concentrated it does definitely lead to more volatile uh, more volatile you know weekly monthly statements but when you're your own investor and you're just working with your capital it doesn't really matter it's what matters is that return two three five years down the road um, and with these businesses and what's nice with the small companies and in this company in particular is like I was able to phone up and have a conversation with the CEO and the CFO and I've done a tour of their their sales facility out in, in Ontario and I've you know I've met with them again at, at some of these conferences and it just shows you like you you know that I think I think Sangoma at the time was you know in the 20 cent range or 30 cent range and with this long runway and you can see it now it's it's done quite well not to say i've all of my winners go from 20 cents to you know to a buck 50 or a buck nine or whatever it is but you can you see that and it changes your outlook on how you how you approach companies and how you you know you you navigate through some of these lumpy quarters because as a business is growing you know many of the expenses are up front they don't you know they don't get to scale right away they have economic factors and but if you truly believe in the management team and you can hold and you have the conviction to hold through some of those drawdowns you know it it does over time you can do quite well with it absolutely so let let's well first things first are you still a shareholder in sangoma um yeah gotcha so so let's take another step back real quick because you know you've already you kind of alluded to your strategy and some of the things that you look for already but let's kind of get like a full picture of, of your investing philosophy and, and then some of your criteria for a potential new investment. You know, what, what, what are they? So I would say from a portfolio structure standpoint, I usually keep about 60 to 80% of the portfolio in companies. I, I, it's not, it's not buy and forget by any standpoint, but it's you, you buy and, and you have belief in the long-term potential of the business. So at any point in time, you know, there's three to five businesses that I've just got a, a, a very large amount of conviction on that I only may trim if the position size becomes really, really way out to lunch, or I might add if there's a rough quarter and I have the, the conviction to, to add to that. And then the other, the other say, you know, 20-ish percent, 30-ish percent is sort of more short term in nature, more kind of mean reversion candidates. Maybe I take like a top down approach um, on some on a basket of companies. So I did that with I've done that a few times with oil services companies, you know, based here in Alberta. Those those returns uh, they're definitely short term, and they you know they have the the potential to be really good and really uh, sort of lucrative and salivating. But at the same time. You're not you're not buying high quality businesses, and so you have to remember, call a spade a spade. Like these are these are cyclical. There's there's no not big barriers to entry. There's these aren't businesses you hold long term. You you hold them for nine to eighteen months, maybe twenty four months at the most, and you you just leave them. And no matter what the outlook seems to look like, it it is not a great business to hold through an economic cycle. But the where I where I do the most wealth generation is in the in the core holdings if you will and those it's really you know you can you can tick through a lot of quantitative uh you can work through a, a lot of quantitative things but really these companies most times don't screen very well they're it's all all their value is in the future and that's where you have to roll up your sleeves and do some work so once i see that there's you know a competent management team that's quite incentivized with a business that has a long runway for growth and someone you know and I mean growth, like like I said, I don't mean two quarters out. I don't mean are they going to beat the next earnings. It's like it's two, three years out. And I really like when there's some sort of situation or some sort of temporary like fog, some, you know, someone that's just scaring everyone away. There's too much hair on it. I like those. Those are my favorite because those are when you can really, you know, get these companies at, at ridiculous 
valuations. You know, you look at Expel with the 3M lawsuit. Um, so Expel with the 3M lawsuit is a good a good example of sort of a temporary um, temporary kind of clouds on the horizon. Now, it was definitely you know there there was a short term kind of jump in the share price, but after the 3M lawsuit was settled, there was a quality issue with their with their product, and that was that was probably more dangerous to the business than the actual 3M lawsuit from a customer standpoint. And investors were, you know, margins were being compressed. There was all this distraction. Um, but at the end of the day, like the demand for the product was still there. It was still a high quality product. And you could say, you know, two years from now, this company should, you know, continue to earn uh, more money than they're doing today, substantially more money than they're doing today, should continue to grow into new markets. And investors were just sort of, sort of gun shy i remember and and that's what's nice about these companies is sometimes you don't even have to be the first person there you can just be you can be there and you can just kind of keep it in the back of your mind and wait for some something to happen i remember when i went to a uh, one of my first uh, investor conferences i think it was like ld micro and like brian pape was there from expel and like everyone is just like crowding around ryan because the share price had gone from I don't know if it went from like 50 cents to five bucks or something like that. And everyone was, and then when they were going through the 3M lawsuit, there was some questions. And then as it dragged on for a few quarters, no one wanted to talk to Ryan. No one really cared. And then, especially with the quality thing, I remember, you know, there was, there was, he, Ryan had his one-on-one -on -one meetings, but there was like, there was not as much interest. As soon as the, you know, this business really started to show its true colors and what it could do, it's popular again. And, and that's what's nice about being a small cap investor or micro cap investor is you don't have to, you don't have to be the first, you don't have to necessarily, um, you don't have to be that very first adopter. You don't even have to buy companies that are, that are not earning money. They can just have their earnings kind of temporarily depressed and you can make a lot of money or even you can just, as long as you can see that value two, three, four years, you know, five years, I've, like even we mentioned uh, Sankoma, I think I've held that company for like seven or eight years now. Um, and Expel I've held for four or five years. It's It's been a pretty, you know, these have been, these are companies that you don't really have a good reason to sell unless that outlook changes, that potential changes. Absolutely. So, I mean, for you, when it comes to idea generation, you know, because that's really more or less what we're, we're now kind of getting getting into here. Yeah. It, it's for you, it, it really comes down to management. It sounds yeah. like, cause one, cause one, cause like you said, like you can, some of these companies don't really screen that well, you know, especially if you're, you know, we all know, you know, yeah. <laughs> and then, and, and then it's really comes down to once you talk to management um, and, 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 and seeing what their vision is and actualizing that. So what are some things that then you look for with management? Yeah, the, like, you know, you could go into incentives and insider ownership and all these other things. Those are pretty, those are pretty common. Those are, you know, well documented. I would say, you know, a growth mindset when you ask management, like, what is some, what is something you've learned in the last, you know, your last acquisition? What is something that went better than expected? And what is something that kind of popped up that did? And if they, if they tell you that everything was completely good and they executed it flawlessly and they, you know, this is, they never make mistakes. That's just not the type of person that they, they may be unsure how to communicate to shareholders. And then that means they may not have a good uh, understanding of, of the type of investor you are. That in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, but sort of worse than that is, is an egotistical manager. That's not going to add any value. You need someone with quite a bit of humility. You need a growth mindset. You need them to, you know, you need them to understand the moving pieces of their business and, and think ahead. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not difficult, but it's not easy to find all of these things. It takes a long time. And a lot of the times the conviction builds as you continue to own, own these companies and you see them navigate through some of these um, kind of different waters that they have to go through, whether it's, uh, whether it's, you know, something opening up, if they're expanding internationally, they're opening something up, a new office somewhere else, something comes up or it takes longer than anticipated. Um, you don't want to see a bunch of failed 
expansion efforts, but you also want them to be able to tell you, here's what we learned, here's, you know, here's how we're going to do it a little bit differently. Uh, so the humility is a big thing. You mentioned the screening, like, yeah, most of these companies, if they do screen well, it's usually, it's usually, uh, I wouldn't say it's too late, but the valuation is a lot higher. So your re expected return is not going to be as good, but sometimes that's okay too, because, you know, with a higher valuation or with a lot of, when you can have a little bit more certainty, it, it might make sense to actually pay up for that valuation. Um, but that's definitely not where you get those really, really outsized returns. Oh, without question. I mean, look, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, I, I've been fortunate enough to interview a, a, quite a few of our peers in this space that are full-time. Uh, I'm not, okay. I'm not a full-time microcap investor, but I've gotten to interview a lot of full-time microcap investors from now. You, Paul, Paul Andriola, Ian Castle, Mike Schellinger, Mosh Don. you know, and each one, each person has their own story of when they finally went full-time you know, and the difficulties in making that switch and that change, especially, you know, you got kids, you got a family and managing all that. So, I mean, for you, when, when did you finally make that switch to say, you know what, this is my hobby. This, this thing that I really love is now turning into something where it's my full-time gig, you know, what, what was yeah. that switch? Yeah. And I, I'll give you some added like context. I'm, I'm a single co-parent. So like this, all the financial burden is on the shoulders uh, for the for the family. So I made the switch. I was as I was working through my career and investing was sort of a passion, a side a side hustle or a hobby. Um, I was the two really dovetailed nicely. I was a general manager at a facility, and I was responsible for three different income statements. So I was actually able to make some of these decisions that I was hoping some of the the managers that I would meet for, from investing would, would make. And then there was one, like we had a few, we had some really good years, but it was a pretty demanding job. And I remember, you know, you'd, you'd check your emails on vacation or you'd come home from vacation and you'd have a bunch, bunch of things to catch up on and be very intense, very stressful. And, you know, it's also, you know, it's also a lot of management is, you know, is kind of convincing people to do what they should be doing. and kind of minding their own business type thing. Uh, and there was, I remember coming back from one vacation where I had a, a win with one of my companies and I just kind of did the math and it was like, huh, I, this year I now earn more through my investments than I did with my salary. And I actually like doing it. Like I don't have to, you know, I, I it wasn't a chore. It didn't seem like an obligation. And it, it's easy for me to stay up, you know, after the kids are in bed or whatever, I'm staying up and I'm, I'm researching another company or I'm looking at another, uh, another name, just even at a cursory glance. Um, whereas if you ask me to do my, my job at 11 o'clock at night, I'm like, no way. I, I don't, you know, that that's tomorrow. And so uh, there was one year where I made more off the portfolio than I did through my salary. And I'm, I know that will not be the case every year, but it was, it was a game changer as far as whether this was actually like, whether this was really going to happen. And that was, that was four or five years ago now, but it was, it was just, it was just, it was like one of those kind of uh, enlightening moments where you're like, oh, I can't believe this is actually going to happen. This doesn't seem, because there's no, again, there's, there's no family history of any of this stuff. I had mentioned my parents, my parents grew up just dirt poor and, and I grew up in sort of a blue collar middle-class family. Um, I have no, I have no actual education in finance um, or anything like that. So it was, it was quite interesting uh, and it was eye opening and, and it really gave me freedom, like freedom to do kind of, you know, as far as we know, we get one go around. And so it might as well do the things you want to do with it. Right. And for me, that's not working for someone else for, you know, 60, 80 hours a week. Hey, as far as we know, we got one go around, right? Yeah, we don't know, right? Who we knows? Know. But uh... <laughs> well, you know, I I, I got to ask, and this uh, not to delve into your personal yeah, yeah. finance or anything like that, but you know, I've I've always been curious. You know, how do you balance the, you know, what whether to liquidate a position because you need cash to pay for this? You know, like what's the mindset? You know, how how do you how do you manage that? And I'm because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who might be listening to this and and saying, you know, I want to go full time, but I just 
I don't know how to how to manage it. So I have cash to do what I want, pay for yeah. essentials, but also you know I don't want to sell a company too early. Yeah, and you also don't want to sell like in a panic down market either, right? The last thing you want to do is in the midst of whatever whatever day that bottom was in in the COVID thing, you don't want to be selling six months worth of living expenses in a, in a core holding right then at just the worst possible time. So there's also tax implications as well, right? You have to understand which account to pull from. And in Canada, we have two kind of main uh, vehicles to build wealth, they're RSP and TFSA. Um, of course, you can have your house and rental properties and stuff. I try and keep sort of, you know, three to six months of just liquid cash at any point in time, just sitting there. Um, even if I uh, have to pull from one account where I pay taxes, you know, later in the year, it's just that way there's, I just sleep easier at night knowing that worst case, you know, I've got at least at the bare minimum three months, mo more likely I have, you know, six to 10 months of living expenses just sitting there. It does give me some comfort to know that, I track my, you know, I've got a, a way of tracking my expenses. So I kind of know almost very close to what I will need without having to worry too much about it. And then the other thing is, you know, there's other levers you can pull. There's expenses you can cut. If you keep your expenses low, there's not as much to cut, but there are, there's always things you can do. And, you know, like, I'll be honest, like worst case scenario, I can just go back to work. Like I kept, I didn't leave on bad terms with any of my positions. Um, so I, there's always the possibility to go back to work. I'm sure, uh, there could be, you know, you could paint a picture where that, that might happen. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it doesn't, but you just never know. Hey, real quick, your phone's on. I just heard it. Oh, on. sorry. No, you're good. Use that one. Okay, um, we're good. yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's funny. I like how you say, you know, you can always go back to work. Like what you do is not work, you know, I, I, <laughs> I would <laughs> I love feel that. like work. Right. I guess yeah. that's why, I guess that's why um, it was kind of an easier decision to make. Cause I figured like there'll, there'll be passion and there'll be, like I said, I try and have a growth mindset and learn from my, have them have my, my losses be lessons and not mistakes. And, and trust me, Bobby, like, man, I've made all of them and I, I'll probably, you know, I'm pretty thick-headed. I'll probably make some of those mistakes many more times before I'm done with this. But, you know, I also live a pretty, you know, I don't have a big lavish lifestyle. I don't own any yachts or anything like that. Like, I drive a used car, live in a modest condo. There's nothing, there's nothing that I'm going, that I need to work for, that I need a substantial sum of money to come in each month as well. So that, that definitely helps. Yeah. No, Except I, I, kids. Kids are tell me, I tell you, you'll and you, you're you're finding out, right? Kids, they don't stop either. Like, uh, but but it's it's great. So. Yeah. No. Well, that it's that's the best expense of all time, right? You know. Mm -hmm. Um, not not to not that we want to label our children as expensive, but they can, <laughs> it's an expense. You know, let's let's, yeah. all be, let's all be real here. Um, you know, but you hit on something that I want to dig into, and this is. You know, I think our my audience loves uh, hearing some of these stories. But like, let's dig into some mistakes. I mean, look in my sure, apps, it is, geez, you can close your eyes, throw a dart, and and hit a mistake. You know, it, it's just yeah. too easy. It's too easy. Yeah. So, I mean, what were some of your your biggest mistakes? And again, if you want to name companies, that's fine. Sure. If yeah. Not, you know, it's all good. Uh, it it but, helps. It helps. Uh, kind of put the series of events together when I actually named the company for me. So okay. one of my bigger mistakes when I learned about some of the risks of uh, concentrated investing is, is understanding, you know, really what you're buying, what the drivers are. So I bought shares in a company. Well, I can't remember how many years ago, quite, quite a few years ago called Fortress Paper. And I don't own the shares uh, anymore, but I remember, I, I don't remember the exact dollars, but I, I bought it at say $20. And I averaged up and it was a business that they had three different businesses. One of them was a banknote kind of printing business that kind of bumped around break even. The other one was a very lucrative wallpaper business, which I didn't know like was still a thing, but earned a lot of money. And the third was they were converting a, an old uh, plant into uh, something that could produce dissolving pulp. They actually ended up having two of them. And so these, you know, required a ton of capital and it was all based on the dissolving pulp price, which is a big input for rayon. 
which can go into clothing and and it was all this 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 there was so much promise and you know at 20 bucks there was the upside to 60 or 80 i bought from 20 to 30 and i look like a rock star you know i'm walking around with my chest puffed out like oh i got this thing figured out i've i've got my like my three books that i've read now and and despite living through 2008 and 9 i didn't have a lot of money at work in the market and this is when i was starting to really you know really see um, you know, it wasn't just hundreds of dollars going down the drain when you lose. And it wasn't just, you know, it was, it was starting, it was starting to math was starting to really make sense. And so it went from 30 bucks. I think I blew the position out at like five or $6. It was just they invested in this, these dissolving pulp plants were just a money pit. There were some delays that were in control of the company and some of them that weren't in control. They sold the wallpaper business, which was the only thing actually bringing cash into, into the corporation consistently. And, you know, it was one of those things where the previous CEO had run a couple of companies and did quite well. So you're betting on the jockey and it still didn't really work out. At the end of the day, like, that's not a, you know, the, the wallpaper business was a decent business. The other two weren't really great businesses. And so but when I was talking about, like, my portfolio construction, I could see, you know, you could paint a picture where I could make a bet on something similar. But it would never occupy a large position in my portfolio. It would never damage my personal wealth to that degree that it did. And it was, it was, you know, there was some tear shed after that, Bobby. It was hard. Like that was a lot. And, and to this day, sometimes I, you know, just when I need a little, when I need to bring myself down a peg, I just go look at some of those mistakes. And that one was a big one. And it wasn't from a percentage term. It was, you know, I think it was 60 or 80% or whatever it was, but the dollar amount and the percentage of the portfolio at that time, was huge and so it took me a while to to come back from it and and there was a time where I was like I don't know if this is really for me maybe I should you know focus on a career buy index funds and just kind of let the the professionals take this over for me and you know I stuck with it like I said I, it, it was a lesson um, I haven't met, repeated that, that one again um, but it it hurt like it stung and you know, I, I've had some, I've still, ha I've had some additional lessons that definitely have hurt a lot less than that for sure. But that was one of the bigger ones. And it was just kind of getting caught up in this, in what was the potential upside without managing risk. And you can, you can pick a hundred stocks like that. And if you manage your position sizing, they can actually, you can turn out to have some decent returns over time. But, uh, you know, when you have it be a large, when it's a large percentage of your portfolio, it, it really hurts when it goes against you. I was just going to say, you know, because that was before you became a full-time investor, but let's, now I'm curious when it, when, once you made the turn to being a full-time investor and you have, you know, either one of those mistakes or a company where you're like, you know what, everything looked good on paper, management yeah. looked good, you were making a good bet on the jockey, there was a nice runway, you know, a, a, a moat even you know, uh, for their business. I mean, can you explain a, a time where, you know, everything, all the boxes checked while you were a full-time private investor during that time yeah. and then yeah, how you, I've, how you handled that, you know, and, and how you managed through that mistake or that pain or not even necessarily a mistake. It was just really execution. Yeah. Like, and some of them are, um, yeah, whether it's a mistake or maybe sometimes you just didn't, you had a little bit too much money at work or um, you didn't quite understand, you know, especially when you're dealing with like, say a spinoff, you don't quite understand whether it's a really good quality business or whether it's just, it's just kind of a so-so a business, you know, if it has a long runway for growth. Um, I haven't run into, since becoming a full-time investor, I haven't run into a big like missed execution uh, other than more recently. And I haven't actually decided what to do with the position. So I own shares in this company called uh, Recro Pharma, and they they put I put a I took like not quite a not a starter position maybe half of a starter position, and they just announced their quarter. You know they had guidance, and it was comparing it to uh, my valuation was sort of based on some of these um, private you know companies being taken out in this similar in the in the same space and. They had issued guidance and it kind of seemed like they weren't going to be overly affected by COVID and it turns out like they just, they had a really rough quarter. And so now you're stuck. You're, you're here, you're down like overnight, not gradually, 
overnight, you know, the shares tank like 40% and you're like, what do you do with this? Do you, you know, do you uh, just completely abandon ship and call it a mistake and a, and a lesson uh, and learn from it? Or do you just kind of, you reset, forget where you bought it, think about where the shares are today. You know, is this a business worth putting some capital to work in? And then maybe taking a, taking a step back. And, you know, for me, it was, it was saying, okay, so what would get me more comfortable? What, if I didn't own shares, what would I buy shares for? Because buying something because it's down hasn't, definitely hasn't worked out for me as an investing strategy. Maybe that works for buying the broader index. You know, after a, a 30% drop in the index, if you put some money to work, I'm sure it, it works out that several years down the road, you've done well. But for me on specific businesses, they have their own specific risks that may or may not be priced into the market, into that share price so for me i took a step back or i've taken a step back and i've defined like what are the milestones that i want to see in the next you know one to three quarters that would get me comfortable to at least maintain this position and potentially add to it and so that's what i've done with that one but i haven't had a big um you know a big landmine since i've gone full-time i'm sure that that's out there waiting for me to find it um, I've definitely just had a couple of stumbles where I've had a company report and the shares have, you know, I've either made or lost a little bit of money, um, but I haven't had it be, haven't had it be a significant amount of my portfolio. Um, I, another company I own some shares in, I probably, you know, I went to an AGM and there was a lot of kind of high fiving and it, it's all based on the, on the future. And this company isn't, isn't profitable yet. And they had just done a, a financing and I had been to the AGM two years prior and it was just me and maybe one other investor and the CEO and the directors. This time I went, the room was full. Everyone was happy. They're all like, we're, you know, we're rock stars. And of course, a lot of these sales did materialize or they're taking a lot longer to materialize. And so the shares of half. And in hindsight, I should have sold after I just, you know, seen the rah, rah, rah at the, at the AGM. and. Uh, there still wasn't at the time. There was just a, a lot of promise. There still is a lot of promise in that business, but it's a small position, so I'm not going to beat myself up over it. For all I knew, you know, three months later, many of those those sales could have materialized, and the share price would have been sustained and then improved as well. So, you know, as far as finding those big landmines, I haven't I haven't stumbled on one yet. Like I said, I'm sure it's waiting for me to get there. Navigating through this COVID thing is, is a whole other can of worms. Uh, and you've had guests on that have talked about, you know, what, what in businesses uh, will do well and what, what the future could look like. Honestly, I, that, this is a whole other can of worms. I have never seen the market go from, you know, I've never seen such violent moves in large percentage terms so quickly. And, uh, and, I'm, and you know, I, I, I haven't been in this as long as some of your other guests, but just the gyrations are, are incredible. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I, I was going to ask you about that too. You know, it, it, you know, you're one of those investors that at least has seen and, and gone through the, you know, the 2008 recession and now this, but this, this is a whole different ball game. I mean, we're talking yeah. about this crazy volatility, you know, matched with, you know, I think I forgot who it was that just, I think it was Tepper or somebody else that just came out yesterday uh, that, that said, you know, we're still like crazy. He's never seen valuations like this since the dot com bubble. Still, you know, and mm. so, and 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 then on top of which, you're looking at an uh, you know, uh, an an economic system where you just there's so many different industries affected right now, and just trying to forecast when any of them will come back. You know, it, it's it's yeah. it will drive you. You go. You keep going down and down the rabbit hole, and you're like. Well, where do I even find the companies that even on a risk adjusted basis are uh, at least somewhat secured? I don't want to necessarily say uh, recession proof or economic global disaster proof, (laughs) but, you know, especially the ones that have, you know, that, that are staples that, you know, have their valuations are already through the roof again, because they are staples, right? I mean, I think I saw something that Bezos is uh, about to cross the one trillion yeah, that's net worth mark. Uh, crazy, you know. So I mean, for you, like, how, how do you how do you navigate all this, and how, how do you how do you formulate your your I guess new thesis? 
Yeah, and you know, despite all of this uh, turbulence, like time is the ultimate friend to a good business. So whether it's one quarters or six quarters or whatever it is, um, it's temporary. Um, will it affect the profitability in the companies I own in the short term? Yep, absolutely. Do my core positions need capital in the next 12 months? No. So like, yeah, earnings can go negative uh, for sure. I could be, I could be uh, owning shares in companies with a, a PE of infinity and, and I'm okay with that. Uh, the, the government has, you know, so far has really stepped in and supported everyone. So it, it's almost like the unemployment numbers don't matter because everyone's getting paid to stay at home for now. How sustainable that is, I have no idea. I just try and stay in my own lane and find companies with you know strong balance sheets, strong products, uh, competent CEOs to sort of make some of those decisions and navigate some of those waters for me. Yeah, I I don't know like and comparing it to comparing it to like the crash of '29 or to the tech bubble and all, I have no idea if that's even valuable. Like we are not the same society from the Spanish flu pandemic. We are not you know this isn't it. This isn't the uh, this isn't the 08, uh, 09 kind of crash with you know with implications through the financial system. This is a, entirely its own animal. So I have no idea. Like I, I see the charts put up of like this is what happened and the bear market rally. Look at the end of the day, in three years, the companies I own shares in, I think, will sell more product or service than they're selling today, and they should do it with comparable margins, if not better. And the valuations to that, without they won't need to damage their balance sheet to get there. Like I, I'm pretty confident that we'll ride through it. And again, when you have the living expenses kind of put aside and everything like that, you're you're a little bit less concerned. It'd be different if I was living sort of month to month and having to sell. It would be a little bit harder. But when that money is sort of sitting there, I'm not I'm not as concerned. I'm definitely starting to build. Uh, and research a list of companies that if the if the lockdowns kind of come and go or there's a lot of staggered sort of reopening and relaunches and, and potentially re-lockdown, that they will they will be impacted. Um, but I do think they're they're run by competent management teams and they do have a um, they do have a good uh, they've got a lot of value that they provide to the customer. Uh, so I'm building that list now. Whether I'll pull the trigger, I'm not hundred percent sure. I also don't like I'm not one of those guys that goes 80% cash and then goes fully invested and uses some leverage after. I generally stay, you know, the most cash I, I've had that I can remember in the last uh, like 10 years was probably in January of this year, January, February, uh, where I was at about 20% cash. Um, but like anyone else, I, or like many people, and despite what all the perfect traders on Twitter will tell you, I probably bought a little bit too early. And so uh, I definitely bought through the dip, but I didn't have as much to deploy at the bottom as I would have liked. But, you know, who who would have known that 2020 was a pandemic year, right? Like you can't beat yourself up over that. Like anyone that can, that tells you they've navigated this perfectly, if they had a good, you know, Q1 in 2020, they probably had a pretty rough previous 10 years because what worked uh, for the previous 10 years just didn't work in Q1. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So we've, we've talked about a few of your experience so far, but maybe, I don't know if it's one of the ones that you've already said, or uh, maybe it's a new one, but, but what experience or investing experience would you say has had the greatest impact on your career thus far? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, um, the greatest impact, I won't look at it uh, from a financial standpoint, but I, I look at um, uh, going back to San Goma, just being able to hold the company through and watch it change the like the business that it is, and 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 watching the capital being put to work and having a a team that understands capital allocation and and, and integrating acquisitions, being really smart with it, um, sort of changed the way I I approached, you know, because you think you know when you're when you're looking at an acquisition where when I was looking at a company that was doing an acquisition previously, it was one plus one equals two. And in this case, like when you find the right, when you find the right um, 
company to buy and you're putting some money to work when, when they are buying another company and it, it either bolt on well or it fills a, a hole in their product line very well, you can see that it's not as much about as the, the price they paid. And when I sat down with the CEO and he, you know, they had done, they've done essentially one acquisition for the last seven or eight years. And, and when you talk to him, he's like, well, here's why I did this one. And here's why I did this one. And it, and you know, they're becoming bigger and more complex. And so the integration is harder and requires, um, you know, a very strong team. And so when you see that being executed and you see the results that does to the business and like the customers and the employees, you can really see uh, how a lot of wealth can be generated for all the stakeholders. And that was, it was eye opening because I lived it. It's easy to read in a textbook, you know, or to read what, um, you know, when the first, whatever game changer product, smartphone, iPod, whatever, but it's when you're living it and it's your money at work, it's, it's a different experience. And I think that because it didn't happen in a year, it happened over three to five years. That really changed it for me when it about taking a long-term uh, you know, timeline or, and, and as well, like having, you have to have con confidence in management because while they were sort of transforming this business, their existing legacy business, this product business, would have good and bad quarters. So they would have, and as these, as these newer products took over more and more of their top line, results became more stable. But as they were doing that, you know, it was, it was sawtooth, it was not linear. And they would have a bad quarter and, and the shares would, you know, they'd, they wouldn't say they would completely tank, they'd have a rough, you know, they'd be down five or 10%. And then it was kind of drift sideways for a quarter. And that was the opportunity because when you can average up and you can still see that long-term potential is there, you know, one quarter really doesn't make a difference. And there was no real missteps that they were taking. It was just this existing business um, was not selling as much product as what the market sort of expected. So yeah, Sangoma wasn't losing money. They had a balance between profitability and growth. The CEO articulated it very succinctly and he just, it was what he said he was going to do. And so it worked out very well for him and it worked out very well for all the shareholders and all of the stakeholders in the organization. So Dean, we've gone this entire time and I haven't even asked you about your blog, Petty Cash. You know, that was one of the, the, one of the things that I found from, uh, you know, when you were on, on Twitter and, and, you know, your blog posts and stuff like that. So tell us a little bit about that because it sounds like that's something that new microcap investors should also look into doing. Uh, to get their ideas out there and, and collaborate and stuff like that. Yeah, the the blog was, you know, there was no Twitter or maybe Twitter was sort of in its infancy. There was no real way to have your ideas critiqued. And I was not a member at the time. I was not a member of the Microcap Club. Uh, and I'm not even sure if it existed when I started my blog, but it was a good way to get ideas out, to have people critique you, to, and also to generate ideas, because once you can build a relationship with someone and they feel comfortable, you know, that you've done a little bit of work on something they're own, they own or they're, maybe they're interested in, they might share some ideas with you. Uh, and so it was really about networking. It was actually through um, Petty Cash and I met Chip, and Chip's been a big mentor to me um, uh, throughout the years. Like his, you know, he's got a lot more experience at this. Um, and so he, he was, he was one of the, like one of the people that sort of helped guide uh, the way I look at some things. And yeah, it was really just a way to, to share ideas. You know, I've always like every, you know, we were saying this offline, like once a year I go through a phase where I'm like, I'm going to post more. I don't put some stuff up there. I put a few posts out and then it just kind of dies. Okay. You know, I've got Twitter, I've got, um, you know, I have a kind of select group of people that think, Similarly to me, or at least look at businesses the way I do, that I don't, I, I'm not sure how much value is there from putting out a blog post. Um, having said that, you know, I, it doesn't hurt. It's not going to do any harm to put an idea out there and have someone critique it. It definitely, you know, it takes more, it takes more effort to put something out there for someone to take a look at and maybe give you some bullet points than it does to just never do anything. Uh, never put anything out there, never have anyone take a look at your stuff. It's, it's, uh, you know, it leads to a lot of humility. Um, and like, I left all of the companies up there. Like I got, I got invested in some Chinese RTO companies back in the day. Like I, 
thankfully they again they weren't big positions but like you know i left all the junk and the good stuff up there so anyone can navigate through that and, and let me tell you when i look back i'm a little embarrassed at my uh at my my analytical skills but i guess if you're not a little bit embarrassed of who you were a few years ago you probably aren't growing so that true words could have that yeah <laughs> you know so with that you know where, where can my audience go and find more information about you and petty cash and uh and also your twitter handle yeah sure so um i have uh, pettycash.blog is the blog i run there is a contact me page anyone's more than welcome to shoot me a uh, an email uh, from there and like I'm I'm a pretty open book about um, you know my journey um, my success and my failures as well I'm on Twitter uh, petty cash and in but it's uh, p-e-t-t-y and then two underscores cash um, and so you'll you'll see me I, I post you know somewhat infrequently uh, on Twitter I um, interested in certain things uh, I definitely have gotten a lot better at saying no so you know no, don't ask me to look at a gold stock with you. It's not going to happen. But if you're interested in like some some decent, you know, Canadian companies, by all means, reach out. And and as well, the personal finance stuff, you know, there is no one, there's no one really walking me through this. I stumbled my way through it. So if anyone has any questions on that stuff, I'm a pretty open book. Uh, and if they want to talk lifting too, I, I like talking lifting. Uh, that's my other side passion. Um, it's driving me crazy that the gyms are closed. But uh you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be open again and uh, at some point. I'm sure. Dude, it's, it's time to invest in a home gym. Yeah. <laughs> the, the hard thing is there's still, there's, there's kids to watch every day. So when they're not in school, I don't have the chance to, to do my long workouts and stuff. Just, do, like just take, just take your oldest. Like, all right, dude, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta hit the bench. Let's go. Uh, I was funny. doing lunges with the one on my, uh, with my older one on my, on my back and piggyback lunges for a while. So oh, that's fine. Uh, that helped a little bit. <laughs> well, good stuff. Well, Dean, thanks so much for doing this, man. I really do appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I'm excited for our next chat. All right? So Yeah. yeah. Thanks stay, so much for having me, Bobby. No, absolutely. Stay safe, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, you as well. Take care.